Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part four of my deep dive into the history of video games. 1993 was a watershed year for the gaming industry. The tides were changing and developers took notes. They realized that their audience was maturing and it was time to cater to an older demographic with games that featured complex narratives, thought-provoking themes, and a shift away from the cartoonish, family-friendly titles of the past. Big players like Nintendo, Sega, and even newcomer Sony Computer Entertainment started to push the envelope fostering creativity and experimentation. Visionaries like Hideo Kojima began taking risks, crafting games with intricate storylines and captivating characters that appealed to adult gamers. This shift in focus had a profound impact on the industry, giving birth to new genres and expanding existing ones, such as survival horror, stealth, and cinematic action-adventure games. The year also saw the first of two congressional hearings on video games, as lawmakers debated the depiction of violence and sexual content. Every day, uh, the news brings more and more images of random violence, torture, and sexual aggression right into our living rooms. Violence and violent images permeate more and more aspects of our lives, and I think it's time to draw the line the influence of these games on children, and the possibility of government regulation. This spotlight on the industry marked a crucial turning point, with the games under scrutiny and their creators striving to strike a balance between creative freedom and social responsibility. 1993 was also a year of rumors and speculation, with whispers of a new Nintendo console, codenamed Project Reality, making the rounds. The gaming community eagerly awaited news about the mysterious project, igniting conversations and fueling the ongoing console war. Amidst all this excitement, David Sheff's book Game Over hit the shelves, providing a comprehensive history of Nintendo and the gaming industry as a whole. Through extensive interviews with key industry figures, Chef's work laid the foundation for future historical research and offered an unprecedented glimpse into the inner workings of this ever-evolving world. How did the industry shift towards mature content and more complex narratives change the gaming landscape and pave the way for the diverse experiences we enjoy today? And how did the scrutiny from the congressional hearings influence game development and the industry's approach to self-regulation? In 1993, a seismic shift occurred in the gaming landscape, a shift that would forever alter the way we play and perceive video games. That shift was Doom. This first-person shooter with its fast-paced action, horror elements, and immersive gameplay didn't just raise the bar, it obliterated it. Doom took the first-person shooter genre, which was still in its infancy, and turned it into a powerhouse. Doom's gameplay was a masterclass in design. It was fast, it was brutal, and it was relentless. But it was also smart. The game's levels were intricate mazes filled with enemies, traps, and secrets, requiring both quick reflexes and and strategic thinking to navigate. But the genius of Doom didn't stop at its gameplay. The game also pushed the boundaries of technology. Doom's engine, with its ability to render pseudo-3D environments and characters, was groundbreaking. It was this engine that allowed for the game's fast-paced action and sprawling levels. 
And it was this engine that would go on to be used in other iconic games like Quake, Half-Life, and Call of Duty. Doom also pioneered the concept of online multiplayer and modding communities. The game included a multiplayer mode, where players could go head-to-head -head in brutal combat. This was a novelty at the time, and it helped popularize the concept of online multiplayer gaming. Doom also encouraged players to modify the game, leading to the creation of countless mods, custom levels, and even entirely new games. This laid the groundwork for the vibrant modding communities we see today. Doom's blend of action, horror, and science fiction had a profound effect on the wider culture. It influenced not just other games, but also movies and music. The game's dark and atmospheric aesthetic, combined with its adrenaline-pumping action, resonated with audiences and creators alike, leading to a wave of Doom-inspired media. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of Doom is the story behind its creation. Doom was the brainchild of a small team at id Software, led by John Carmack and John Romero. The game's title was inspired by a scene in The Color of Money, where Tom Cruise's character reveals his custom pool cue case with the word Doom. The game was initially conceived as a hybrid of Aliens and Evil Dead 2, and it was this unique blend of influences that gave Doom its distinctive flavor. Doom is the most influential game of all time, and I made a video about it because frankly, there's too much to tell. Mist was a game that defied conventions. At a time when action-packed, fast-paced games were the norm, Mist offered a different kind of experience. It was a game that was slow, contemplative, and cerebral. There were no enemies to fight, no time limits to beat, and no threat of dying. Instead, players were free to explore the game's beautifully rendered environments at their own pace, solving puzzles and uncovering the game's rich backstory. This approach to gameplay was revolutionary at the time. It showed that video games could be more than just mindless entertainment. They could be immersive, interactive experiences that challenged the mind and stimulated the imagination. This was a radical departure from the norm, and it paved the way for a new genre of adventure games. But Myst's innovation didn't stop at the gameplay. The game was also a technological marvel. It was one of the first games to be released on CD-ROM, a format that allowed for much larger and more complex games than the floppy disks that were commonly used at the time. This allowed the developers to create a game that was visually stunning, with pre-rendered 3D graphics that were unlike anything seen before in a video game. The use of CD-ROM also had a significant impact on the gaming industry. Myst was so popular that it helped drive the adoption of CD-ROM drives, which in turn paved the way for the rise of multimedia PC gaming. This was a major turning point in the history of video games, and it's largely thanks to Myst. The game's unique blend of exploration and puzzle solving inspired a new generation of adventure games, but its influence didn't stop at video games. Myst's immersive storytelling and atmospheric sound design also had a profound impact on other forms of media from movies to music to literature. One of the most fascinating aspects of Myst is the story behind its creation. The game was developed by a small team at Cyan Incorporated, led by the Miller brothers Robin and Rand. The game's original title was Riven, but it was changed at the last minute to avoid confusion with another game that was in development at the time. The game's puzzles were designed by a team of mathematicians and physicists, which is why they are so challenging and thought-provoking. And the game's iconic soundtrack was composed by Robin Miller, adding to the game's immersive and atmospheric experience. 
At a time when turn-based combat was the standard for role-playing games, Secret of Mana introduced a real-time battle system with a power bar mechanic. This system added a layer of strategy and excitement to the combat as players had to carefully manage their attacks and spells to ensure they had enough power to execute them. This innovative approach to combat was complemented by the game's Ring Command Menu system. This system allows players to pause the action mid-battle and make strategic decisions such as changing weapons or using items. This added a tactical depth to the combat that was rarely seen. But Secret of Mana wasn't just about combat. The game also offered rich narrative and a vast, colorful world to explore. The story followed three heroes on a quest to prevent an empire from conquering the world with the power of an ancient flying fortress. This narrative was brought to life by the game's vibrant graphics and memorable characters, creating an immersive experience that captivated players. One of the most unique aspects of Secret of Mana was its cooperative multiplayer mode. This was a rarity in role-playing games at the time, it's a rarity today, and it added a whole new dimension to the gameplay. Players could team up with a friend and tackle the game's challenges together creating shared experiences and memories that added to the game's appeal. Secret of Mana's journey to release was not without its challenges. The game was originally planned to be released on the SNES CD, a peripheral that would have allowed for larger and more complex games. However, when the deal with Sony fell through, the developers had to drastically cut down the game's content to fit onto a cartridge. Despite these setbacks, the team at Square managed to create a game that was both technically impressive and deeply engaging. The genesis of Star Fox was the outcome of an unlikely partnership between Nintendo and Argonaut Software, a relatively small British studio. Argonaut first turned heads at Nintendo by cracking the Game Boy's copyright protection. Far from facing legal repercussions, the British developers were rewarded with a three-game contract, making them the first non-Japanese third-party studio to work officially with Nintendo. This unexpected alliance began with a prototype Argonaut developed called NES Glider, which later evolved to suit the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. This was a pivotal development, as it laid the foundation for the Super FX chip, a cutting-edge piece of technology that enabled real-time 3D graphics on the SNES, a feat that would revolutionize console gaming. Both companies brought unique strengths to the collaboration that would produce Star Fox. Argonaut's tech-savvy members were effectively poached to become full-time Nintendo employees, focusing exclusively on the game's technical elements. Their expertise catalyzed Nintendo's first foray into 3D gaming, setting a precedent in the industry. Nintendo, on the other hand, injected the game with its unparalleled narrative depth and character development. The result was a compelling story about Fox McCloud and his Star Fox team, who engage in an epic quest to defend their home planet, Corneria, from the villainous Andros. The game also stood out for its cultural fusion. Shigeru Miyamoto, the game's lead developer and the mind behind other iconic Nintendo franchises, drew inspiration from the Japanese Fox deity, Inari Okami. The design of the R-Wing spacecraft, players pilot throughout the game, was molded after this deity. 
Miyamoto was inspired by a Japanese shrine he passed daily on his commute, and he decided to incorporate this spiritual element into Star Fox. This cultural infusion enriched the game, setting it apart in a market primarily characterized by Western sci-fi themes. Despite the immense success and synergy between Argonaut and Nintendo, their collaboration was not without bumps. Relations eventually soured when Argonaut pitched an idea for a 3D platformer featuring Yoshi, one of Nintendo's beloved characters. Nintendo rejected the proposal, leading Argonaut to rework and release the game independently. Dune 2 The Building of a Dynasty, developed by Westwood Studios and published by Virgin Games, stands out not just for its gameplay, but for the way it shaped the industry. This real-time strategy game, based on David Lynch's 1984 film adaptation of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel Dune, is often hailed as the progenitor of the RTS genre. Dune 2 wasn't the first RTS game, that would be Herzog's Y, but it was the one that is established the format that would be followed for years to come. It was the game that struck a balance between complexity and innovation, laying the foundation for future RTS classics like Warcraft, Command and Conquer, Age of Empires, and Starcraft. This was the game that popularized the RTS genre, and its influence can still be felt in the industry today. One of the most innovative aspects of Dune 2 was its resource management mechanic. Players had to collect resources to build units and structures, a gameplay element that added a layer of strategy and depth to the game. This mechanic was a game-changer, and has since become a staple of the RTS genre. It forced players to think strategically, balancing their resource collection and unit production to outmaneuver their opponents. The game cast players as the commander of one of three interplanetary houses, the Atreides, the Harkonnen, or the Ordos. The objective was to wrest control of the desert planet Arrakis, the only source of the valuable spice melange from the other houses. This narrative setup combined with the game's strategic gameplay created a compelling and immersive experience that kept players hooked. But what truly set Dune 2 apart was its setting. The game was based on the world of Dune, a rich and complex universe with a deep lore and a unique aesthetic. This setting gave the game a distinct flavor that set it apart from other RTS games. The desolate landscapes of Arrakis, the unique characteristics of the Three Houses, and the looming threat of the giant sandworms all contributed to the game's unique atmosphere. Looking back, it's clear that Dune 2 was a game ahead of its time. Its innovative gameplay mechanics, its unique setting, and its influence on the RTS genre make it a landmark title in the history of video games. It's a game that deserves to be remembered and celebrated not just for its own merits, but for the way it shaped the industry. As we continue to navigate safely through the rich and diverse world of RTS games, we can take a snuff of spice and thank Dune 2 for paving the way. 1994 is a year of maturation and self-regulation in the gaming industry. As games became more realistic and graphic, it was clear that a rating system was necessary to ensure age-appropriate content for players. The gaming industry came together in the face of congressional pressure and the threat of government intervention in the United States, sparked by games like Doom, Mortal Kombat, and Night Trap. The Entertainment Software Ratings Board, the ESRB, was formed by major players like 
like Sega and Nintendo, along with other companies, to help players make informed choices about the video games their children play, while allowing game designers to cater to diverse audiences without compromising their artistic vision. 1994 also marked the transformation of Project Reality into the Nintendo Ultra 64, with the console's design unveiled to the public for the first time. This reveal fueled anticipation and speculation about the upcoming release, keeping gamers on the edge of their seats. As the industry continued to evolve, so too did the media that covered it. Game Zero magazine became the first video game news magazine on the web, embracing the digital age and forging a new path for gaming journalism. So as we explore the 1994 time capsule, let's consider these questions. How did the formation of the ESRB impact the gaming industry and the way games were designed, marketed, and consumed? How did the unveiling of the Nintendo 64 set the stage for future console releases and industry competition? And what role did the shift to digital media play in shaping the way we talk about and engage with video games today? Super Metroid is an action-adventure game developed by Nintendo and Intelligent Systems that took the gaming world by storm with its sprawling, interconnected world, atmospheric storytelling, and refined gameplay mechanics. The game drops you into the alien world of Zebus with little guidance, leaving you to explore and uncover its secrets at your own pace. This sense of freedom was a key design philosophy of the Metroidvania genre, started by the original Metroid, but truly fleshed out in Super Metroid, to the point that many people believe Super Metroid is the original game altogether. The game's protagonist, bounty hunter Samus Ran, is on a mission to retrieve a stolen Metroid from the space pirate leader Ridley. This simple premise unfolds into a rich and atmospheric narrative that's conveyed more through the game's environment and gameplay than through text or dialogue. This minimalist approach to storytelling was quite innovative at the time and has since become a hallmark of the Metroid series. Series. Super Metroid also introduced several new gameplay mechanics to the series, such as the inventory screen and auto map, and the ability to fire in all directions. These additions not only enhanced the gameplay, but also deepened the strategic element of the game. The inventory screen and auto map in particular were instrumental in helping players navigate the game's vast and intricate world. The game's atmospheric music and detailed graphics further contributed to its immersive quality. The haunting melodies and eerie sound effects created a sense of isolation and tension that perfectly complemented the game's alien environments. The graphics, meanwhile, were some of the most impressive on the SNES, with detailed sprites and backgrounds that brought the world of Zebes to life. Super Metroid was met with critical acclaim upon its release, with praise for its atmosphere, gameplay, music, and graphics. It's often cited as one of the greatest video games of all time, and its influence can be seen in numerous indie games and developers. The game also became popular among players for speedrunning, a testament to its tight controls and well-designed levels. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of Super Metroid is the fact that it was almost cancelled three times during its development. The game was the largest ever created up to that point, and the development team faced numerous challenges in bringing their ambitious vision to life. But they persevered, and the result was a game that pushed the boundaries of what was possible on the SNES. 
Final Fantasy VI, the sixth main entry in the Final Fantasy series, is a game that truly left its mark on the RPG genre. Released in 1994 for the SNES, this role-playing game developed and published by Square was a tour de force of storytelling, character development, and strategic combat. One of the most striking aspects of Final Fantasy VI is its expansive cast of characters. The game features 14 permanent playable characters, each with their own unique abilities, personalities, and story arcs. This was quite a departure from the norm at the time, as most RPGs typically focused on a single protagonist or a small group of heroes. This diverse cast allowed for a rich and varied narrative, with each character bringing their own perspective to the game's events. The game's plot revolves around themes of rebellion, the pursuit of magical arms, chemical weapons in warfare, and personal redemption arcs. These themes are explored through the game's intricate storyline, which sees the characters battling against the evil empire led by the villainous Kefka Palazzo. The plot is filled with twists and turns, and it's brought to life by the game's stunning visuals and iconic music, composed by the legendary Nobuo Uematsu. Final Fantasy VI also introduced several innovative gameplay mechanics. The game features an overworld map, town and dungeon field maps, a battle screen and a menu screen. Combat is menu-based and uses the active time battle system, where each character has an action bar that replenishes itself based on their speed statistic. This system added a layer of strategy to the game's battles as players had to carefully manage their characters' actions to succeed. The game's setting and plot revolve heavily around espers and their remains when deceased, which are referred to as magicite. This concept of magicite was a unique feature in the game providing a tangible representation of the game's magic system and serving as a key element in the game's plot. Final Fantasy VI was the first game in the series to be directed by someone other than the series' creator, and this change in leadership brought a fresh perspective to the series, and it's reflected in the game's innovative design and ambitious scope. Donkey Kong Country was a reboot of the Donkey Kong franchise, and it took the gaming world by storm with its revolutionary pre-rendered 3D graphics, captivating platforming gameplay, and memorable characters. The game follows the gorilla Donkey Kong and his nephew Diddy Kong as they embark on a quest to recover their stolen banana horde from the crocodile king K. Rule and his army the Kremlings. The game features 40 side-scrolling levels, each filled with platforms to jump on, obstacles to avoid, items to collect, and enemies to defeat. There are also minecart rides, animal buddies to ride, and secret bonus stages to discover. The controls are tight and responsive, making the game a joy to play. One of the most groundbreaking aspects of Donkey Kong Country was its use of pre-rendered sprites. This technique involved creating 3D models of the characters and environments, and then converting them into 2D sprites. This resulted in graphics that were stunningly detailed and lifelike, a significant leap forward in visual fidelity for the time. This visual style set Donkey Kong Country apart from the other games of its era and made it a standout title on the SNES. 
The game's soundtrack, composed by David Wise, is another aspect that deserves special mention. Wise's composition for Donkey Kong Country are widely regarded as some of the best video game music of all time, with tracks that perfectly complement the game's varied environments and intense action. Donkey Kong Country was also notable for its marketing campaign, which was one of the most extensive and expensive of its time. This campaign helped to generate significant hype for the game, and when it was finally released, it lived up to the hype and then some. The game was a critical and commercial success, selling over 9 million copies worldwide and setting a record for the fastest selling video game at that time. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of Donkey Kong Country is its origins. Rare, formerly Ultimate Play the Game, the British company that developed this game and games like Jetpack, initially impressed Nintendo with a simple boxing demo. This demo showcased the potential of pre-rendered 3D graphics and it convinced Nintendo Nintendo to give Rare the reins to the Donkey Kong franchise. The result was a game that not only revived the Donkey Kong franchise, but also pushed the boundaries of what was possible in a platformer game. Warcraft Orcs and Humans allows players to choose between two factions. Orcs and humans, each with unique units and structures. The objective is to build a small town, harvest resources, construct an army, and lead it to victory. The game offers a variety of mission types, a multiplayer mode, and a random map generator, providing a wealth of content for players to explore. One of the most significant aspects of Warcraft Orcs and Humans was its emphasis on skillful management of relatively small forces. This was a departure from the norm in RTS games at the time, which often focused on amassing large large armies. In Warcraft, each unit mattered, and losing even a single one could have significant consequences. Another unique aspect of the game was its cohesive fictional universe. The game maintained characters and storylines within a well-crafted world, which added a layer of immersion that was not common at all in RTS games at the time. This focus on story and character would become a hallmark of the Warcraft series and would be adopted by other RTS developers in the years to come. The game's development was led by Chris Metzen, who would go on to create Warcraft, Starcraft, and Diablo franchises. The game's original title was Warcraft Orcs and Goblins, but it was changed to avoid confusion with the popular tabletop game. Warhammer, Orcs, and Goblins. Warcraft was a critical and commercial success, winning several awards and spawning a long-running franchise. Its engaging story, strategic gameplay, and multiplayer support garnered a dedicated fanbase and set the stage for future RTS games. The game's influence can also be seen in its sequel, Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness, which became a main rival to the Command & Conquer series by Westwood Studios. This is somewhat ironic, considering a the game was inspired by and modeled on Dune 2, a 1992 release from Westwood Studios. Dune 2 is often credited with establishing the RTS genre, and Warcraft Orcs and Humans built upon its foundations, introducing innovations in mission design and gameplay elements that would become standard in future RTS games. Virtua Fighter, a series of fighting games created by Sega AM2 and designer Yu Suzuki, was a game that truly revolutionized the fighting genre. Virtua Fighter was the first fighting game to use 3D polygon graphics, a groundbreaking innovation that set the stage for the future of the genre. The game involves two combatants needing to win two out of three rounds using various attacks to deplete the other fighter's stamina gauge and deal a knockout. The series features 
requires a grounded and semi-realistic system of combat without supernatural powers, which was a departure from the norm in fighting games at the time. This focus on realism added a layer of strategic depth to the game. One of the most significant aspects of Virtua Fighter was its character models. These models were based on real-life martial artists, and they were some of the most realistic ever seen in a video game at the time. This attention to detail and commitment to realism set Virtua Fighter apart from the other fighting games, and helped to establish it as a standout title in the genre. The hardware used was intense at the time. Yu Suzuki introduced the use of motion capture animation technology which was previously limited to the health industry. Perhaps emboldened by his success with that, he would then acquire military texture mapping technology that cost millions of dollars and managed to engineer it down to $50 per chip, which he then used to introduce texture-mapped 3D characters with Virtua Fighter 2. This level of technical know-how and deep embedding in the hardware and software sides of the arcade business at the time explains why Suzuki oversaw most of Sega's ports from arcade to home consoles. Despite being the franchise of choice for many a hardcore fighting game fanatic, Virtua Fighter was often overshadowed by its contemporaries. The fourth and fifth game in the series in particular gained strong reviews, but they were largely overlooked by the general public. This is a double-edged testament to the game's depth and complexity, which appealed to hardcore gamers, but may have been less accessible to casual players, who mostly only remember its cover sitting on the shelves of rental stores. However, this does not diminish the game's significance or its impact on the fighting genre. Virtua Fighter was a game that pushed the boundaries of what was possible in a fighting game, and it set a new standard for realism and strategic depth. It inspired many 3D fighting games, such as the Tekken and Soul Calibur series. One group who was inspired, and it changed their entire direction? Sony and the PlayStation team. The team at Sony, led by the father of the PlayStation, Ken Kutaragi, was grappling with how to budget for and promote games that used 3D graphics. At one point, Sony seriously considered designing the PlayStation to use 2D hardware. They were having trouble understanding the potential of 3D graphics. Even Shigeo Maruyama, the former chairman of Sony Computer Entertainment, admitted that he was giving presentations on the PlayStation's capabilities without fully understanding them. However, the release of Sega's Virtua Fighter marked a turning point. Its success demonstrated the potential of 3D graphics in a popular genre, the one-on-one -on -one fighting game. This revelation clarified the direction for the PlayStation. The team realized that to stay competitive with consoles like the Saturn and Nintendo 64, the PlayStation needed to be capable of rendering high-end 3D graphics. They hired one of the key designers from Virtua Fighter, Saichi Ishii, and built their own fighter, Tekken. Ironically, Sega, the company that provided this crucial insight, was one of Sony's main competitors. Sega was preparing to launch the Sega Saturn, which beat the PlayStation to market in Japan by a few weeks. The Saturn, bolstered by a home version of Virtua Fighter, initially outsold the PlayStation. 
However, the demand for the Saturn only reinforced Sony's confidence in the PlayStation's potential for success. In the end, the PlayStation was a resounding success selling over 100 million units worldwide. In contrast, Sega's Saturn, despite its initial lead, sold fewer than 10 million units. The influence of Virtua Fighter on the PlayStation's development is a testament to the game's groundbreaking use of 3D graphics and its impact on the video game industry. Ridge Racer was a game that was born out of a cultural trend. In Japan, there was a growing fascination with racing on mountain roads and drifting around corners. This was a unique style of racing that was thrilling and required a high level of skill. Namco saw the potential of this trend and decided to bring it to the world of video games. The result was Ridge Racer, a game that captured the essence of this racing style and brought it to life in a way that had never been done before. One of the most groundbreaking aspects of Ridge Racer was its use of 3D texture-mapped graphics. This was a first for arcade video games, and it made Ridge Racer a visual spectacle. The game's System 22 hardware was capable of texture mapping and garage shading, which allowed for a level of graphical detail that was unprecedented. The cars, the tracks, the scenery, everything in Ridge Racer was rendered with a level of realism that was simply mind-blowing. Namco wasn't exaggerating when they described Ridge Racer as the most realistic driving game ever. But Ridge Racer wasn't just about the graphics, the game also introduced drifting mechanics, which added a whole new layer of depth to the gameplay. Drifting around corners wasn't just a cool visual effect, it was a crucial part of the racing strategy. Mastering the art of drifting was the key to winning races, and it gave Ridge Racer a level of complexity and challenge that set it apart from other racing games. Despite its groundbreaking features, Ridge Racer wasn't without its flaws. The game was criticized for its lack of strong AI and multiplayer mode, but these shortcomings didn't diminish the game's impact. Ridge Racer was a hit, receiving positive reviews for its gameplay, audio, and graphics. It captured a cultural trend, bringing the thrill of mountain road racing and drifting to gamers around the world. 1995 brought forth a new level of competition. The introduction of CD-based games by Sony opened up a whole new world of possibilities for developers. With more expansive and immersive experiences at their fingertips, they were able to create games that took players on incredible journeys, both visually and emotionally. And it wasn't just Sony who felt the impact. The entire industry had to step up their game to stay competitive. As the PlayStation and and Sega Saturn hit the market, gamers found themselves with an abundance of choice, and the rivalry between consoles fueled an insatiable desire for innovation. Meanwhile, the inaugural E3 brought companies, developers, and fans together, creating a unique environment where new games, consoles, and ideas could be showcased and celebrated. It laid the foundation for an annual event that would continue to shape and define the gaming industry for decades to come. How did the arrival of the PlayStation and CD-based games force other companies to evolve and adapt? And what role did the first E3 play in bringing the gaming community together and fostering a spirit of friendly competition? Chrono Trigger is a game that truly stands the test of time. This game, with its engaging, time-traveling narrative, memorable characters, and innovative combat system, captivated players and left a lasting impact on future RPGs and generations of gamers. One of the most remarkable aspects of Chrono Trigger is its unique narrative structure. 
The game follows a group of adventurers who travel through time to prevent a global catastrophe. This time traveling aspect is not just a gimmick, it's integral to the game's narrative and gameplay. Players can visit various eras, including the prehistoric age, the Middle Ages, and the post-apocalyptic future. Each era is distinct, with its own cultures, conflicts, and characters, and the player's actions in one era can have a ripple effect in others. Another standout feature of Chrono Trigger is its battle system. The game was one of the first to use the Active Time Battle System, a turn-based combat system that allows players to take actions as soon as their character's ATB bars fill up. This system adds a layer of strategy to the game's battles, as players must carefully manage their character's actions and timing to succeed. The active time battle system was so innovative and engaging that it has since been adopted by many other video games. The game's development team also deserves a special mention. The team included three designers that Square dubbed the Dream Team. Hironobu Sakaguchi, creator of Square's Final Fantasy series, Yuji Horii, creator of Enix's Dragon Quest series, and Akira Toriyama, character designer of Dragon Quest and author of the Dragon Ball manga series. This all-star team brought a wealth of experience and creativity to the project, and their combined talents helped to make Chrono Trigger a masterpiece of the RPG genre. Despite its critical and commercial success, Chrono Trigger is often overlooked in discussions about the greatest video games of all time. This is perhaps due to the game's complexity and depth, which may have been intimidating to some players. However, for those who took the time to delve into its rich narrative and intricate gameplay, Chrono Trigger offered an experience that was both challenging and rewarding. Command & Conquer, developed by Westwood Studios and later absorbed into EA Los Angeles, is a name that resonates with any real-time strategy game enthusiast. This game franchise, with its 11 games and 8 expansion packs, has sold over 30 million copies worldwide, and it's not hard to see why. The mechanics and gameplay elements that were pioneered in Dune 2 were refined and expanded upon in Command & Conquer, helping to establish it as one of the most successful and influential games in the RTS genre. One of the most striking aspects of Command & Conquer is its innovative gameplay. The game involves constructing a base, acquiring resources, and producing various types of forces to conquer the opponent's base. This might sound like standard fare for a real-time strategy game, but Command & Conquer added a layer of depth and complexity that was unprecedented. Each faction in the game has structures and units with similar functions, but these are adjusted to fit each faction's theme and varying properties. This means that each faction has its own unique strengths and weaknesses. The game is set in an alternate history where a meteor crashes near the river Tiber in Italy in 1995, spreading a mysterious substance called Tiberium. This sets the stage for a global conflict between various factions, each vying for control of this valuable resource. The game's story is told through parallel campaigns of various different factions, each offering a unique perspective on the central storyline. Westwood Studios, the team behind Command & Conquer, was one of the pioneers of the real-time strategy genre. This game was one of the first real-time strategy games to use 3D graphics, a feature that would become standard in the genre in the years to come. The game's soundtrack added to the immersive experience, setting the mood for the intense strategic battles. This 
Despite its success, Command & Conquer is often overshadowed by other real-time strategy games. However, for those who took the time to delve into the intricate gameplay and engaging narrative, Command & Conquer offered an experience that demanded strategic thinking and careful resource management, and it rewarded players with a deep and immersive gaming experience. Super Mario World 2! Yoshi's Island took the well-established Super Mario franchise and turned it on its head. Instead of controlling the familiar plumber Mario, players found themselves in the shoes of Yoshi, a dinosaur-like creature tasked with protecting baby Mario on a perilous journey. This change in protagonist was just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how Yoshi's Island innovated within the Super Mario universe. Inspired by the work of artist Yoshihiro Tatsumi, the game's visuals are characterized by bright colors, detailed backgrounds, and whimsical characters. This coloring book aesthetic was a departure from the more traditional pixel art seen in previous Super Mario games, and it gave Yoshi's Island a distinct and memorable visual identity. This art style was not just a superficial choice, it was a reflection of the game's original intent to be an educational game for young children. Even though the game eventually evolved into a more traditional platformer, the childlike charm of its visuals remained, creating a game that was as delightful to look at as it was to play. Yoshi's Island also introduced a number of gameplay innovations that set it apart. One of these was Yoshi's signature abilities, such as the flutter jump and egg spawning. Players had to master them to navigate the game's increasingly challenging levels. Another notable feature was the game's time-based health system. Instead of having a set number of health points, Yoshi's health would gradually decrease over time, adding a sense of urgency to the gameplay. This was a significant departure from the norm for platform games of the time, and it added an extra layer of challenge that kept players on their toes. The game is a prequel to Super Mario World, and it tells a story of how Yoshi embarked on a mission to rescue baby Luigi from baby Bowser and his minions. This narrative gave players a new perspective on the Super Mario universe, and it added a layer of emotional depth to the game. Earthworm Jim 2 took the already quirky and offbeat Earthworm Jim franchise and cranked the dial up to 11. This sequel was not just a continuation of the original game's run-and-gun platforming gameplay, it was a wild ride that threw convention out the window and embraced the absurd. One of the most striking aspects of Earthworm Jim 2 is its sheer variety. Each level in the game is a unique experience, with its own distinct style and objectives. One moment you are navigating a maze-like intestinal tract, the next you're bouncing puppies to safety on a giant marshmallow. This constant shift in gameplay keeps the game fresh and unpredictable, and it's a testament to the creativity of the game's developers. This level of variety was rare, and it set Earthworm Jim 2 apart from its contemporaries. The game's humor is another standout feature. Earthworm Jim 2 is filled with irreverent and surreal humor, from its bizarre level concepts to its wacky enemy designs. The game doesn't take itself too seriously, and it's this light-hearted, tongue-in-cheek approach that gives Earthworm Jim 2 its unique charm. The humor is not just surface level either, it's woven into the fabric of the game, from the gameplay mechanics to the level design. 
This commitment to humor is a defining feature of the Earthworm Jim franchise, and it's one of the reasons why the games have remained so memorable. The soundtrack to Earthworm Jim 2, composed by Tommy Tallarico, is another highlight. The game's music is as eclectic and offbeat as its gameplay, with catchy melodies and upbeat rhythms that perfectly complement the on-screen action. The soundtrack is not just background noise, it's an integral part of the game's identity, enhancing the gameplay experience and contributing to the game's overall charm. Rayman, the limbless hero, burst onto the scene, bringing with him a vibrant world that was as whimsical as it was challenging. This side-scrolling platformer, developed and published by Ubisoft, marked the beginning of a franchise that would become a staple in the platforming genre. Rayman is a riot of color, with each level boasting a unique and imaginative design. From the lush jungles of the dream forest to the musical madness of Bandland, each world in Rayman is a feast for the eyes. This vibrant aesthetic was the brainchild of French video game designer Michel Ancel, who sought to create a game that was visually appealing to a wide audience. The result is a game that is as much a work of art as it is a platformer. The game is a platformer at its core, but it's far from a straightforward run-and-jump affair. Each level is a carefully designed puzzle requiring precise timing, quick reflexes, and a keen eye for hidden paths and secrets. The game's challenge is further ramped up by the inclusion of a variety of enemies and obstacles, each with their own unique behaviors and attack patterns. The gaming world was taken by storm with the release of Descent, a first-person shooter that dared to defy the conventions of its genre. Developed by Parallax Software and published by Interplay, Descent was a game that didn't just push boundaries, it obliterated them, introducing a unique six degrees of freedom movement system that allowed players to move in any direction, including up and down. This was a game that truly took the concept of 3D gaming to new heights. In a time when most first-person shooters were limited to two degrees of freedom, allowing players to move only along the ground and not look up or down, Descent broke the mold. The game allowed players to move in any direction, creating a sense of freedom and control that was unparalleled at the time. This innovative mechanic not only made the game more challenging, but it also made it more immersive and exciting, giving players a real sense of being in the cockpit of a spaceship navigating through labyrinthine mines. Another aspect that set Descent apart was its use of a fully 3D engine. Prior to Descent, most first-person shooters used 2D sprites to represent enemies and environments, resulting in a flat, somewhat unrealistic look. Descent, on the other hand, boasted realistic environments and enemies thanks to its 3D engine. This visual leap forward made the game a stunning spectacle and set a new standard for future 3D games. The advent of CD-ROM technology opened up new possibilities for game developers, allowing them to create more immersive and cinematic experiences. One game that truly capitalized on this technological leap was Phantasmagoria, a point-and-click adventure horror game designed by Roberta Williams and released by Sierra Online in 1995. Phantasmagoria was a game that pushed the boundaries of what was possible. It featured live-action actors and 
footage. The game's plot follows protagonist Adrian Delaney, who moves into a remote mansion and finds herself terrorized by supernatural forces. This narrative was brought to life through cinematic scenes and three-dimensionally rendered environments, creating an immersive and suspenseful gaming experience. But what really set Phantasmagoria apart was its production. The game was developed over two years with a team of more than 200 people and a budget that ultimately exceeded $4.5 million. This was due to the extensive filming and use of Hollywood special effects, which gave the game a cinematic quality. The game was based on a 550-page script, about four times the length of an average Hollywood screenplay, and it took more than four months to film. Sierra even built a $1.5 million studio specifically for the game, further highlighting the scale and ambition of the project. Despite its high production values and innovative use of technology, Phantasmagoria was not without controversy. The game was criticized for its slow pacing and easy puzzles, but the most contentious aspect was its graphic content. Phantasmagoria featured violent and sexual scenes, including a rape scene that sparked backlash from retailers, politicians, and religious organizations. The controversy, however, did not prevent the game from being a financial success. It grossed $12 million in its opening weekend, outperforming all of Sierra's Quest games. Sierra was an important company, but today people tend to forget exactly how important and influential they were. They made influential contributions, set industry trends, and faced both successes and challenges. Roberta Williams was inspired by the first adventure game, Colossal Cave Adventure, and desired to create her own stories with a graphical component. Her husband, Ken Ken Williams supported her and shifted his focus to developing Roberta's game, called Mystery House, which became the first ever graphical adventure game. That game was successful, earning them substantial profits and leading them to establish Sierra Online in Coarse Gold, California. Sierra's history is intertwined with the democratization of computers and the rise of the home computer industry. They engaged in a battle with Infocom, known for their text-only adventures like Zork, as Sierra introduced immersive graphics to adventure games. Sierra faced criticism for dumbing down the interactive story, but they also elevated and popularized the adventure game model. Sierra released numerous successful titles over the years, including King's Quest, Space Quest, Leisure Suit Larry, and Gabriel Knight. Phantasmagoria proved its value, so it wasn't terribly surprising when just a year after this game came out, Sierra was offered a buyout at one point five billion dollars from CompuCar, a membership-based mail-order club that today is perhaps most easily compared to Amazon. They went through various ownership changes, mergers, and rebranding, becoming a property of Vivendi Universal. Sierra faced significant downsizing, studio closures, and job losses, and in 2004, Vivendi disbanded Sierra as a company although the name continued to be used for publishing purposes. Activision later acquired Sierra's products and merged with another of CompuCard's acquisitions, Blizzard Entertainment, to become Activision Blizzard. Sierra ceased to exist as an independent company and most of its properties were sold off. The Williams couple, Ken and Roberta, became wealthy, and the legacy of Sierra lies in their role as pioneers of graphical adventure games and their impact on the gaming industry. The story of Sierra is often 
romanticized, portraying them as the torchbearers of pure adventure games. However, the reality is more nuanced, with Roberta's game ideas initially met with skepticism from Ken. Sierra made efforts to diversify beyond adventure games throughout their history, but in the end, the company's ultimate fate was closely tied to the decline in popularity of adventure games. The arcade scene was slowly giving way to home consoles, and the PlayStation was emerging as a major player in the industry. It was in this context that Tekken, a fighting game developed by Namco, was released. Tekken was a game that broke new ground in several ways. For one, it introduced a unique control scheme that allowed players to control each of the fighter's four limbs independently. It meant that players had to think more strategically about their attacks and defenses, considering not just when to strike, but also with which limb. The game featured a diverse lineup of fighters, each with their own unique fighting style and backstory. The plot of the game revolved around these characters competing in the King of Iron Fist Tournament, a brutal competition organized by the ruthless Mishima. This narrative element added a layer of drama and intrigue to the game, making the fight feel more personal and the stakes feel higher. But perhaps the most significant aspect of Tekken was its graphics. Tekken was originally a test case for animating 3D character models, and it was developed for the Namco System 11 arcade board, which was based on PlayStation hardware. This allowed the game to feature some of the most impressive visuals of its time, with detailed character models and fluid animations that made the fights feel more realistic. Let's just take a second, because it's really hard to see these games today, 30 years in the future, in the light they were originally presented in. On one hand, you had games like Tekken on the PlayStation, pushing the boundaries of what was possible with 3D graphics and complex control schemes. Games like Phantasmagoria spending as much money as Hollywood productions and building million-dollar sets. On the other hand, you had games like Yoshi's Island and Chrono Trigger on the Super Nintendo, which, while excellent in their own right, simply could not compete in terms of graphical fidelity. It's sometimes hard to believe that these games all came out in the same year, a few months from each other, in fact. The gap in visual quality was so stark that it was almost like they belonged to different generations. This was a testament to how quickly the industry was evolving and how some companies were struggling to keep up. Nintendo, for instance, was caught off guard by the rapid rise of the PlayStation. They didn't expect Sony's console to be out so soon, and they certainly didn't expect it to be so good. The PlayStation's superior hardware allowed for games that were visually stunning and technologically advanced, making the Super Nintendo seem outdated by comparison. This disparity was not lost on gamers. When they saw a game like Tekken with its impressive 3D graphics and innovative gameplay, the choice was clear. The PlayStation was the future of gaming, and they wanted to be a part of it. Tekken capitalized on this shift in the market. It became one of the first PlayStation games to break a million copies sold, and the fourth best-playing game of the year. It was also the first game to offer a simulated 3D experience, a feature that was highly touted at the time, and drew many gamers away from other fighting games like Virtua Fighter. The success of Tekken was a clear sign of the changing times. It showed that gamers were ready for more advanced and immersive experiences, and that companies like Namco were willing to deliver. 
It also highlighted the challenges that Nintendo and other companies were facing in keeping up with the pace of innovation. But perhaps most importantly, it demonstrated the power of technology to transform an industry and redefine what is possible in a video game. In 1996, we bid farewell to the flat worlds of 2D and embraced the groundbreaking potential of 3D graphics. The real game changer? Graphics processors. These powerful devices, like the 3DFX Voodoo series, were specifically designed to handle complex calculations and rendering tasks, making 3D gaming a reality. These GPUs transformed the gaming landscape by allowing developers to create immersive, visually stunning 3D environments that were more engaging than ever before. The 3D revolution didn't just alter the way games looked, it also changed gameplay mechanics and level design, unleashing new possibilities for creative storytelling and interaction. While the 3D revolution was in full swing, the home console market underwent a major shakeup. Several systems, including the Virtual Boy, Atari Jaguar, 3DO Interactive Multiplayer, Sega CD, 32X, and CDI were discontinued, clearing the way for the undisputed champion of 1996, the PlayStation, which sold a whopping 6.6 .6 million units worldwide. If there's one thing you take away from that list of games, it should be that they're all somewhat gimmicky. The PlayStation effectively ended the gimmicky toy vibe that had attached itself to gaming since 1985, and since Nintendo's decision to market the NES as a toy. Sony's PlayStation changed the perceived rules of the game, and made it clear there was one singular determining factor for sales. Just make a good console. As we explore the events of 1996 and their influence on the gaming industry, how did the development and adoption of powerful GPUs redefine gaming as we know it? What were the key moments that signaled the end of the 2D era and the beginning of the 3D revolution? And as we reflect on the home console market, how did the shifting dynamics of the industry contribute to the rise of the PlayStation and the decline of its competitors? Super Mario 64 not only marked the successful transition of the iconic Mario franchise into the realm of 3D platforming, but also set a new standard for the genre as a whole. This was a game that didn't just push the envelope, it tore it apart and rewrote the rules. Super Mario 64 was a game that took the familiar and beloved character of Mario and placed him in an expansive, open-world environment that was unlike anything players had seen before. This was a game that gave players the freedom to explore at their own pace, to discover secrets and hidden areas, and to truly immerse themselves in the world of the Mushroom Kingdom. It was a game that took the linear, side-scrolling formula of previous Mario games and turned it on its head. Super Mario 64 was designed to take full advantage of the Nintendo 64's analog stick allowing for precise 360-degree control of Mario. This was a major departure from the digital, eight-direction controls of previous games. And this control scheme was not just a novelty, it was a fundamental part of the game's design, integral to the exploration and platforming that were at the heart of the Super Mario 64 experience. Super Mario 64 also had a hub world. Princess Peach's castle served as the central hub from which players could access various levels through paintings. This added a layer of exploration and discovery to the game that extended beyond the individual levels. It was a design choice that would be emulated by countless games in the years to come. 
Super Mario 64 was also notable for its soundtrack, composed by the legendary Koji Kondo. The game's music was as vibrant and memorable as its visuals, with catchy melodies and upbeat rhythms that perfectly complemented the game's whimsical art style and fun gameplay, enhancing the game's atmosphere and contributing to its overall charm. In Tomb Raider, the gaming world was introduced to a character that would become one of the most iconic figures in the industry, Lara Croft. The debut of Tomb Raider was a game changer, bringing a thrilling blend of action, exploration, and puzzle solving that would set the standard for the action-adventure genre. At a time when most video game protagonists were male, Tomb Raider broke the mold by featuring a female-led character. Lara Croft wasn't just any character, though. She was a strong, intelligent, and independent an archaeologist adventurer who could hold her own in any situation. This was a significant shift in the portrayal of women in video games, and it was a move that resonated with many players. Lara Croft quickly became a cultural icon, rising to prominence as one of gaming's most recognizable characters. The game itself was a masterclass in design and gameplay. Developed by Core Design and published by Eidos Interactive, Tomb Raider took players on a thrilling journey through ancient tombs and temples, filled with deadly traps, hidden treasures, and a host of enemies. The game's levels were meticulously designed with a perfect balance of action, exploration, and puzzle solving that kept players engaged and on their toes. The game's environments were richly detailed and atmospheric, bringing the ancient tombs and temples to life. The use of 3D graphics also allowed for a greater level of interaction with the environment, with Lara able to climb, jump, and swim through the game's levels. Quake was a revolutionary title in the first-person shooter genre. It was a game that took the fast-paced, adrenaline-pumping action of its predecessors, Doom and Wolfenstein, and elevated it to a whole new level. But Quake was more than just a game. It was a technological marvel that showcased the potential of 3D graphics and online multiplayer capabilities. One of the most notable aspects of Quake was its engine. The Quake engine was a groundbreaking piece of technology that allowed for full real-time 3D rendering and early support for 3D acceleration through OpenGL. This was a significant leap forward in terms of graphics and physics, and it set the stage for the visually stunning games we see today. The Quake engine was so influential that it was used in many other popular games for years, including Half-Life and Unreal Tournament. This engine was not just a tool for creating games, it was a catalyst for innovation and a driving force behind the evolution of the gaming industry. Quake was one of the first games to feature online multiplayer, which allowed players to compete against each other over the internet. This helped to make Quake one of the most popular games of its era. The introduction of online multiplayer in Quake laid the groundwork for future competitive shooters and esports. It was a feature that transformed gaming from a solitary activity into a social experience, and it paved the way for the rise of competitive gaming and eSports. The single-player campaign in Quake also deserves mention. Though often forgotten at the time, over the years, Quake's campaign has gone on to be considered one of excellent pacing and difficulty. In the campaign, the player takes on the role of Ranger and must collect four magic runes from four dimensions of Quake to stop the enemy and end the invasion of Earth. 
In the mid-90s, a game emerged that, while not as widely recognized as some of its contemporaries, made its mark on the gaming landscape. That game was Return Fire, a vehicular shooter that combined strategic thinking with high-octane action. Return Fire was a game that took the concept of capture the flag and turned it into a thrilling strategic showdown. Players would commandeer tanks, helicopters, and jeeps, using these vehicles to invade the opponent's base and capture their flag. This blend of strategy and action was unique, and it gave Return Fire a distinct identity in a market saturated with platformers and beat-em-ups. One of the most innovative aspects of Return Fire was its use of destructible terrain. Players could use their vehicles to destroy buildings and other objects, creating new strategic opportunities and adding an extra layer of depth to the gameplay. This was a game that rewarded creative thinking and strategic planning, and it was this aspect that set it apart from other games of the era. Another standout feature of Return Fire was its soundtrack, composed of public domain music. The soundtrack added a classical touch to the game's high-octane action. The juxtaposition of classical music with explosive gameplay created a unique atmosphere that further distinguished Return Fire from its contemporaries. Despite its innovative gameplay and unique features, Return Fire was overshadowed by the more popular titles of the time. This was in part due to the game's initial release on the 3DO, a console that struggled to compete with the likes of the PlayStation and Sega Saturn. However, Return Fire was later ported to the PC and PlayStation, allowing it to reach a wider audience and gain the recognition it deserved. Resident Evil was a survival horror masterpiece that not only terrified players, but also introduced a new level of strategic gameplay and narrative depth. This was a game that didn't just want to scare you, it wanted to challenge you, to make you think, and to immerse you in a world that was as intriguing as it was horrifying. While many games of the era had simple, straightforward stories, Resident Evil had a complex and engaging narrative that was revealed piece by piece as the player explored the game's environment. The game's story was filled with twists and turns, and it kept players on the edge of their seats from start to finish. The influence of Resident Evil can be seen in many of the horror games that followed. Games like Silent Hill, Dead Space, and Outlast all owe a debt to Resident Evil's innovative gameplay mechanics and atmospheric storytelling. Even today, the game's influence can be seen in the resurgence of survival horror games like The Evil Within and Alien Isolation. In the mid-90s, the gaming industry was in the throes of a revolution. The advent of 3D graphics was transforming the landscape, and developers were exploring new ways to tell stories and engage players. Amidst this whirlwind of innovation, a game emerged that dared to be different, a game that eschewed the allure of 3D graphics and instead embraced a medium that was as old as art itself. Clay. That game was The Neverhood. The Neverhood was a point-and-click adventure game that was unlike anything else on the market. Its world was not made of pixels or polygons, but of clay. 
Every character, every object, every inch of the environment was handcrafted from clay and then animated using stop-motion techniques. This gave the game a unique, tactile quality that was a stark contrast to the smooth, computer-generated graphics of its contemporaries. But The Neverhood was more than just a visual spectacle. It was a game that challenged players to think, to explore, and to solve puzzles. The game didn't hold your hand. It dropped you into its strange, surreal world and left you to figure things out for yourself. This was a game that respected its players, that trusted them to be intelligent and curious, and that rewarded exploration and experimentation. One of the most memorable aspects of The Neverhood was its protagonist, Clayman. Clayman was an amnesiac figure who woke up in a deserted world and had to discover his purpose and origins. This narrative device allowed players to discover the world of The Neverhood along with Clayman, sharing in his sense of wonder and confusion. Clayman's journey was not just a quest to save the world, it was a journey of self-discovery, a journey that resonated with players on a deeply personal level. We've seen a year of change from 2D to 3D, we've seen the proliferation of the 3D camera, we've seen the effect of the GPU on the gaming world. We've seen how games have started to be more complex, more complicated, bigger and better. Games are no longer a one-man show, they're not simple and they're not accessible. Enter Minesweeper. How do you put Minesweeper in a time capsule? I, I don't know. It's the first completely digital game in our time capsules. Minesweeper is a logic puzzle video game that features a grid of clickable squares with hidden mines scattered throughout the board. The objective is to clear the board without detonating any mines, with help from clues about the number of neighboring mines in each field. It's a game that requires careful thought and strategy, and it's a game that can be incredibly satisfying to play. The game was not developed by a major gaming company, nor was it the result of years of development and testing. Instead, Minesweeper was a game that was bundled with operating systems and desktop environments. It was a game that was designed to be a simple time waster, a game that people could play when they had a few minutes to spare. But despite its humble origins, Minesweeper quickly became a phenomenon. The game's popularity was so widespread that it even caught the attention of one of the most influential figures in the tech industry, Bill Gates. It's been reported that Gates was so addicted to Minesweeper that he deleted the game off his own computers only to then sneak into other people's offices to play it. This anecdote not only highlights the game's addictive nature, but it also speaks to its universal appeal. Minesweeper was a game that could be enjoyed by anyone, regardless of their gaming experience or skill level. Despite its simplicity, Minesweeper has inspired countless variants and clones that expand on the basic concepts of the game. A new hero spun his way onto the PlayStation, Crash Bandicoot, a quirky, denim-clad marsupial with a penchant for smashing crates and thwarting the plans of the nefarious Dr. Neo Cortex. Developed by Naughty Dog and published by Sony Computer Entertainment, Crash Bandicoot hit the shelves and quickly became one of the defining games of its generation. Crash Bandicoot wasn't 
just another platformer. It was a game that pushed the boundaries of what was possible on the PlayStation, with vibrant graphics, immersive sound design, and challenging gameplay. The game's unique third-person perspective set it apart from other platformers. But what really set Crash Bandicoot apart was its protagonist. Crash was a character unlike any other. He was a bandicoot, a creature rarely seen in video games, and his personality was as vibrant as his orange fur. He was a wisecracking goofball, a character who, despite being subjected to countless hours of media by the villainous Dr. Neocortex in an attempt to evolve his mind, ended up as a lovable, wisecracking goofball. This unique character design, coupled with Crash's dynamic moveset of jumps and spins, made him an instant hit with players. Interestingly, Crash Bandicoot was initially conceived of as a wombat named Willy. It was only after much deliberation that the team decided to make the character a Bandicoot, a decision that would prove to be a defining moment in the game's development. This change not only gave the game its unique identity, but also set the stage for the creation of a character that would become one of the most iconic figures in video game history. Who today would admit to being a fan of Willy the Wombat? The game's success was unprecedented. It sold over 6 million units, making it one of the best-selling PlayStation games and the highest-selling ranked on sales in the United States. This success not only cemented Crash Bandicoot's place in video game history, but also established Naughty Dog's reputation as a leading developer in the industry. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one.